So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. We are back here at drinking the movies and I have the same guest that you've seen before, Patrick Ho. Thanks for coming back, Patrick. Thank you for having me again. We're talking about some um, movies that I think we both thought would be a little bit more balls to the wall or absurd when we scheduled them. We're talking about X, Morbius, and everything everywhere all at once, respectively. Um, you know, just first impression, general idea. What do you think on this side of watching them versus before you'd seen them? Um, honestly, I, I think I generally like two of those movies, one of them, but I guess my expectations of Balls to the Walls may not be the same as yours, Taylor. When I think, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I didn't, I don't know what I expect when I go into movies anymore. I just go into them, hope I have a good time, and I can genuinely say I had a good time if two of them. <laughs> yes, I I definitely had a good time with one of them. I res I respect two of them, liking and respecting, you know, two different things. Um very different. And then I I definitely have a a more uh negative reaction than you on our on our vampire uh sandwich in the middle. Um between these two A24 films. Spoiler alert on which movie <laughs> you didn't like the most. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real surprise to everybody. Out of uh, X, Morbius, and everything everywhere all at once, who would think the most negative response would be Morbius? Um, but before we dive into those any further, let's go ahead and do some first impressions uh, and start with Michael Mann's lim uh, I think it's a limited series on HBO Max, Tokyo Vice. You like busting my balls, huh? <laughs> it is a great joy of my life. Giving up and going home is not an option. You know what I mean? You know exactly what you mean. Let me guess. This is how you recruit a cop. All right, Patrick, that was the trailer for Tokyo Vice starring. Ansel Elgort, Rachel Keller, and Ken Watanabe. What do you think? I was excited watching the trailer until I discovered that Michael Mann only directed the first episode, and the rest is directed by Destin Daniel Cren. So, I don't know what to make of that. <clears throat> I um, was also thinking of this while watching the trailer myself, because the drama that appears to unfold is not what I would call intriguing. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm normally pretty um, bored by the journalist is the hero narratives, unless they're actually like really engaging stories. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking to myself that this is one of those series where like the first episode is the best episode of television all year, but the TV show in its entirety is actually not that good. <laughs> That's or, kind of what I was thinking. 
why else would you watch this but to watch <clears throat> Michael Mann direct again for the first time in almost 10 years? Um, I'm a big fan of Rachel Keller and Ken Watanabe. So those mm-hmm. are two pulls for me. Uh, Rachel Keller, who we were talking about before this, um, really rose to prominence with her role in uh, Legion. And I just want to see more of her um, pulling off a long character arc. Um, and then Ken, of course. I mean, he's just one of the best actors in supporting roles working today. Yeah. And obviously there's, you know, there's always that little bit of uncomfortable feeling of, oh, another story of a white guy going into it, predominantly going into an Asian country to expose some CD underground. We've had this story before of the white person going and infiltrating the Yakuza or. In fact, I think there's a Jared Leto movie about it. Yeah. I think it's called The Outsider, right? Or Yes, like, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Good fall. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's also a movie called The Yakuza, which which I think had... Was that with Gregory Peck or something like that? I don't remember. I, I don't think that I saw that one, but it, I, I do loosely remember what you're referencing. Um, but the... The television show, you already don't really watch television um, in your free time. You tend to spend it all watching films that are about to expire from your favorite streaming services. So um, do, you, Max. do you think that you'll watch this show at all? Maybe just the first episode or how I do you feel think, about it? I mean, I have to support my man, Michael Mann, um, because I am generally a fan of his work. And I, I, love, I love that this year... I feel like for the last few years, we've been getting a lot of the old masters, your Scorsese's, um, Schrader's, Spielberg's of the world. They're making movies. Um, Francis Coppola wants, wants to make another movie. So I'll, I'll always well, support he's the making old. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. I hope it, it hasn't started yet, right? He hasn't gotten to production yet. Has he? I don't think it started. I, th- I think they're in pre-production right now. Yeah. So I want to support the old masters and Michael, I know. There's been lots of reports on how hard it's been for Michael Mann to get his movies off the ground because they just don't make the movies he makes anymore. And now he has to go to a limited series that's clearly going after his Miami Vice history. It's called Tokyo Vice. Um, but yeah. Well, I, it's a totally different ambiance than it Miami is. Vice, right? But I feel like the title, the title's waking at it, right? <clears throat> yes. I, I think that that's actually the name of the novel. It's adapted from them. Oh, cool. <clears throat> um yeah i so black hat was what 2016 so it has been a hot minute since he's yeah. had a a film release but he did just release uh heat to the novel right mm-hmm. so yeah and I he's think, still creating i think he may still have that ferrari movie he's been dying to make forever i think that may still get off the ground soon um i almost think that it did get off the ground um or is that a different filmmaker that's making that ferrari movie i don't know just if michael Mann makes a movie or makes something yeah he has a it was announced that he's gonna make the ferrari movie with and driver penelope cruz so that could be fun that's right that's right yep yeah that was in the news because i think that decision came shortly around when um adam driver had fired his agent um and decided to just cast himself in all movies and represent himself with his attorney. So that's good. That's a good pairing for, um, for Michael Mann. Um, but all right, let's hop over and take a look at Gaspar Noé's Vortex. On est bien peu de choses Et mon ami la rose 
me la dici metà Ma quattro per te? Mi scusi di passare Se ti cerchi per tu Per tu le carte On est à la maison, maman. Non, T'as peur? All right, Patrick. That was the trailer for Vortex. Speaking of old masters, we have Dario Argento, Francois Lebrun, and Alex Lutz playing the three leads in the film. What do you think? Yeah, um, I know that you're a big Gaspar Noé fan. I think I can run hot and cold on his um, experimental balls to the wall style that you can do. Provocatorism. Provocatorism. But so far from this trailer, it seems pretty subdued, except for this interesting use of split screen that seems like it's doing. I know this has already played at um, several film festivals where it's generally getting good reviews, right? Yeah, it played Khan in the New York Film Festival. It's um, widely considered his most tame film and mm-hmm. his most, um, you know, uh, elder film. He's no longer working in the mode of provocateurism. He suffered a severe health issue and nearly died um, in between oh. Lux Eterna and making this film. And he decided to kind of go a different way now that he's... So now he's looking back at life Um more fondly and looking forward at, at old age um, with with a little bit more uh, adult oriented philosophical engagement rather than um, the uh, middle finger to nihilism that he had uh, previously it, working with this dual uh, screen mode as well as something that he did in Lux Eterna right before he made this film. So he, um, had already experimented with this before, but this is definitely in that mode of um, deep emotionality rather than middle finger to the sky. Um, Actually, what it um, speaking of that, what it kind of reminded me of, at least just from the trailer, and maybe it's because it's involving old people, older people, and I don't, I don't necessarily know what the plot is quite yet. But kind of remind me um, to of a more the Michael Hanukkah film, mm-hmm. who is who is also a provocateur. And I think a more kind of was that kind of more down to earth, emotional style that he's not necessarily known for. Yeah. I, I think that that's actually the only film from Michael that I I've seen to this date. I've got his entire filmography in my watch list, but you know, it's in there with um, more than half of Hong Sang Soo and all those other masters, Tarkovsky, et cetera. To be fair, Hong Hong releases seven movies a year. Uh, yes, and he re-releases six of his old movies every year too. <laughs> um, so, but but what did you think? Uh, is that a film that that you're actually looking forward to, or, or so so? Once again, once again, with all of these masters of cinema, I'm going to be there opening weekend. Um, I still haven't seen uh, Lux Eterna yet, which I know was one of your favorite movies of last year. And uh, 2019. Yes. Has it? Yes, 2019. But whatever No Way releases, whether or not I've liked or has have been cold on them, I'm going to watch it and try to watch in the movie theater because he's definitely one of the mo- more interesting and experimental filmmakers out there. 
yeah, whether you like him or not, if you engage with him, um, you'll have a more honest interaction with that piece of art than most other things that you'll see at the multiplex. Yeah, um, definitely more than Morbius. But we'll talk about <laughs> that later. Uh, so Lux Eterna was also acquired and should receive distribution, I believe, later this summer. Vortex is coming out in New York uh, on the 29th of April and then in wide release on May 6th. And then April 7th is when Tokyo Vice uh, episode one begins streaming. And with that, let's get over to Ty West's X. Farmer's daughter, take one. I need to be famous, Wayne. All the best people are. There ain't nobody else out there like you. You know why? Why? Because you got that X factor. Our days of struggling may soon be over. Hollywood, here we come. So this is it. Our own studio backlog. Where do you look? I'm looking for a place to stay. Oh, yes, sir. That's one ugly song, bitch. All right, Patrick. This is a movie that I found out was coming out the day that they announced it because you eagerly had messaged me, um, not only saying that you're going to write about this title, but kind of educating me on the previous works of Ty West. How did this stack up for you? Yeah, I always found Ty West to be one of the more interesting filmmakers in his collective. He kind of came up in the Adam Wingard, um, Joe Swanberg, Amy Simon school of filmmakers. They, they were in each other's works. Um, Ty West is in You're Next. Um, and then if you watch Ty West's first movie, House of the Devil, um, Greg Gerwig's in it. So he's kind of involved in that, um, late 2000s independent cinema movement and i always found his work particularly interesting because they always seem to be kind of these theses or treatises on whatever genre he's working in house of the devil is this kind of like 80s babysitter um um style movie um his following film the innkeepers is kind of this 1960s style ghost story similar in the vein of the haunting and things like that and I was always impressed by his stylistic choices and the way he truly loves these genres and, but tries to make it his own. And I think he continues that with, um, his latest movie, X. I completely agree. It's, um, formally much more engaging than I had expected. Um, I believe it starts in widescreen in that first opening scene where we see the aftermath of the events that take place during the film. And it's in the transition, I think, from the porch on the or the porch doorway into the hallway that the aspect ratio changes. Mm -hmm. And it's it's simultaneously working in the mode of the genre that it's in to kind of hearken to our focus is getting narrowed and something horrific happened. But it's also obscuring the face of whoever the victim is on the floor um, and really just tightening the the corners and the shadows. Um, and there's just small things that he does throughout the film um, that are informative like that. It does have uh, nods to filmmaking. It does talk about new wave cinema. Um, you know, it doesn't feel entirely... Um, like it like it works it, it definitely feels a little bit stilted to me um right. but i do appreciate that there's actual characters in the film 
that are saying these things that might actually say those things at that time. Um, whereas normally it would just be something metatextual that the director puts in without having, you know, an actual legitimate character to say it. Yeah. Well, for me, I think with his works, it goes beyond feeling like homages or someone who's trying to, to say, to give a sense of how much they know about cinema or filmmaking. I think it, I think he's able to incorporate into the mood and style of his filmmaking. And I think why I like X as much as I do is because of, is because of all these elements and also thinking about the metatextual elements of it, kind of why the purposes of why he centers his movie in the year 1979 or the way he uses um, this, what he's trying to say about pornography and horror films, which may, may seem rope, but I think he's able to find some uh, new grounds to cover in his filmmaking. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily disagree. I, there's just, um, there's a wonkiness or a, a general um, sense of not all these pieces actually come together, sure. even though what he's doing is um, an original spin and an original take in absolute good faith, trying to present a, a, what feels like a 1979 horror film in the modern era. And he does so well. But it's those little things like when they're at the gas station and everything's supposed to be of period. It just feels like it's trying too hard. Mm -hmm. um, that it, you know, it zooms in as they pull out um, on the TV with the rhetoric. And it just, it's little things like that that actually rub me the wrong way because you're, you're forcing it too much. You already had me. And now you're really trying to force the issue in a, a way that um, does feel rote that does feel uh over grandiose um in, in an unnecessary avenue um but i i do like the um avant-gardeness of doing a porn shoot um that there's this guy trying to make this uh film you know and he has to deal with some uh unseemly characters along the way to do it um but let's let's arrive at the farmhouse what, what do you think about the the ride from um, the beginning of when we arrive in the van to how we end. Yeah. So we get the classic setup of a bunch of young people's um, who are kind of, and they're kind of all there. They kind of fit all these little caricatures, right? You have your, yeah. Um, none of them are talented. There's no kid Cuddy, no Jenna Ortega, no Brittany snow, no, uh, Mia Goth, you know, no one's talented in this little group. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I guess I was, I was trying to say that you have, you have what you kind of have your little like horror movie, uh, your horror movie caricatures and they're, they're explicitly these type of characters. You have like Jenny Orte Jenna Ortega who's kind of playing this. She's literally nicknamed Church Mouse because she's kind of this um, prudish figure or or I, uh, I don't want to say prudish. <laughs> this kind of virginal figure who's not as sexually explicit as the rest of them. You have Brittany Snow who is, who is sexual, who is very overt with her sexuality. She wants to be She's a pro at porn acting and Scott Miss Goody, Scott Kid Goody, Miss Goody. Mm -hmm. 
um, uh, plays the a porn actor who is also um, aptly named Jackson Hole. Yeah, and who <laughs> is, who we are told has a very big Jackson member. <laughs> And then you have, and then you have Mia Goth, who is our lead of the movie. She wants to be a big star, and she thinks that um, working with uh, Martin Harrison's um, producer figure will be the fastest way to get there. Yes, and you you know they uh, they plan to get there together. Um, yes, they they do arrive into the film as a couple. Um, as much as one doesn't really think that Mia would stay with him with the uh, key bumps she's doing. Um, especially in the beginning of the film, kind of, uh, speak to a, a woman who just wants hers. Um, and Mia does have dual roles in the film. She also plays a character named Pearl, who there will be an entire film dedicated to that I believe was already shot. Is that correct? Yeah. So they, um, give a little background on the show in this movie. They shot this during COVID in New Zealand, and because of, the restrictions, they found themselves with some extra time to show a whole nother movie. Yeah, I know that while they were in quarantine, or while uh, Ty was in quarantine for two weeks in the hotel, that's when he wrote Pearl, mm-hmm. waiting to, to get into shoot X. Um, so uh, M- Mia has those two roles. Um, there's lots of homages to um, things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even something more contemporary like Lake Placid. Um, but the <laughs> the sense of Ty West's um, love for this genre and the way that he sincerely engages with it um, does, you know, just reek of quality. There's moments where everybody looks away um, when a, the producer character is looking out the holes of the barn because everyone knows what is coming after he stepped on a nail. Um, there's these, these great sequences of um, the horror genre where it's, it's not just an homage to it's actually um, it, its own entity that uh, was earned from the beginning to the end of the film. We've seen in a lot of horror movies, which once, which is made by filmmakers who love the horror genre, who simply just don't have the skill to pull off the 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 movies that they want to pay homage to and i think ty west is someone who goes beyond just loving this stuff but um is trying to is trying to pay tribute and also kind of make a point of it um something that i keep thinking about is the way that he the cuts in between um, the fast edits in between both the porn scenes, the sex scenes, as well as images of horror, right? He, mm-hmm. he does that multiple times in it and just trying, once again, trying to make the point of just America's fascination with these two type of quote unquote lurid pieces of entertainment, both in violence and in sex. And once again, I think there's, Something very interesting about setting it in 1979 when we are in this era in American culture in which we are about to reach this type of sexual um, conservatism with the Reagan era and then with the oncoming of AIDS right after something like Debbie Dallas becomes a mainstream success. 
Yes. Meanwhile, everybody's wearing, you know, on, on pop culture television channels, you know, scantily clad outfits, things of those nature. So even though the, the culture from the top down is saying, you know, repression, th- there's still that representation of the world is still horny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have Linda Carter on Wonder Woman or Three's um, Company is about to become a hit soon or if it hasn't already. Yeah. Um, the one of the the most memorable moments for me is when um, Mia Goth's um, main character. Gosh, what was her name again? Mark Maxine Minx. Maxine. Um, when she is shooting her scene, um, she's on top, and the camera is from behind her, shooting her back, looking out this window, mm-hmm. and you see Pearl out there behind the, the uh, shed or, or trees and she's, you know, leering in and you get this, um, this deep sense of envy of one yeah. woman towards uh, another woman, not for anything besides her age um, and her, you know, uh, ability to engage in sex acts. And it's just something that is not, similar to anything I've really ever seen in a horror film. Um, You know, there's a lot of different reasons for crazy old couples to kill people as we've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, But rarely is it because they're envious of their ability to have sex. Um, Normally it's for ideas that they have or ideas about the world that, that these villains have, but these feel like real people that are just jealous and bitter. And yeah. that's something that I actually really responded to here. These are probably the most developed villains that I can think of in and a horror when film you, recently. When you say these people, you're talking about Pearl and her husband, Howard, who are yes. maybe octo Nigeri, who are probably 80-year-olds who are- it, who Or older. Yeah. I, I'd almost be inclined to say, oh, well, I guess this is the 70s. And, you know, people age better the- the more recent we are. So maybe yeah. you're right. Yeah. Let's say. 80. Yeah. And it's, 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 um, it's alluded to that Pearl it was kind of a sexually adventurous young woman. I mean, she looked like Mia Goth in, mm-hmm. when she was younger. Um, so I'm, I'm actually curious about what this Pearl movie is actually going to be about. I believe or she said she's be- a dancer. Or she was a dancer mm-hmm. in the film as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I wonder too. Um, in an interview, Ty West said that um, the mode of that film, like its technical idea is Technicolor. That is the mm. premise of it. Um, so it's going to be a very different genre from the sounds yeah. of it. Um, and more, per- perhaps the furthest away he's ever gotten from the horror genre. So I'll say that the most, some of the most compelling writings, um, detractors of this movie has has kind of pointed to Taiwas and to say that he's kind of being, I guess, ageist or, or there's some, there's something, there's something off about centering the horror on to aging people's, um, sexuality or kind of making that a terrifying thing. Do you agree with that at all? That sounds like the stupidest, most lowbrow reactionary, <laughs> like bullshit I've ever heard. Like, no, that's absurd. How could you say that that's not? F- no, there's so many other films that have done this without actually giving these characters reasons. And, you know, there's 
you know, go watch Vortex if you want something that maybe doesn't end with uh, the couple killing everybody. But, um, y- you know, with with X, we we actually get a sense of two people that love each other very much. Yeah. And um, they've become embittered and envious and, you know, isolated. And this is how they react. I don't think it's entirely believable, but I really enjoyed it. And just that um, the premise of that argument is just that's one of the stupidest things I've heard so far this year. Also fine. There's that moment. There's that post-coital moment after um, Pearl and her husband, Howard have sex, which mm-hmm. I find genuinely kind of sweet. And I feel and that they gen they are genuinely tender with each other, even after they commit these hard fighting acts. And maybe that's kind of where the heart of the terror is coming from, but there's something very sweet about him being able to perform because the fear is that he's going to have a heart attack heart attack from doing something so strenuous but i i don't there was something sweet about them them being together there was and and what made it better was mia being trapped under the mattress at the same time yeah or not trapped but you know uh under it and and how um busted out those springs were <laughs> you know it just it made it simultaneously um uh tender but uh horrible at the same like it's just juggling these two things at once and that's what the in general the entire film does is it it's juggling sex and horror it's juggling um love and and desire um mm-hmm. all these different things and it's solid it's it's not a, a great piece of work by uh my estimation but it, it is one of the better films i've seen this year and it absolutely deserved to be screened in a theater and i'm glad it was normally this is the type of thing that you'd expect to see dropped on streaming and i think something else i want to point out is like despite like i'm i'm pointing to maybe headier themes than most people would think but it's also just a fun horror movie it because yes. he Ty West knows how to do the gore and do the kills, and there's something satisfying about proper setup payoff. Like there's you alluded to Lake Placid, and there are those illusions, and when that final, you knew you knew when that was going to happen. When if you seen Lake Placid, an alligator is going to choose was going to eat someone, and when that happens, you're like, yeah, let's do it. Yes, um, the these are some of the best delivered kills that Mm -hmm. I've seen in recent memory as well. Um, I, I obviously don't know the entire filmmaking aspect of it, but from what I understand, the doing a reshoot of these types of scenes is basically, you know, an all day task because if it goes wrong, you have to do a full set cleanup of whatever the liquids were, whatever (laughs) was broken in, in the scene. So um, knowing how limited his budget was, I, I think it's, um, it's really telling that he was able to get this quality. I, I think that he's not only a filmmaker to, you know, to go back and look at the works of, but I think that maybe he's a filmmaker that we haven't seen the best from because mm-hmm. he still seems to be evolving, still seems to be changing, still tr- trying to make a name for himself and, uh, taking risks that he seems to find satisfying. So I'm, I'm very happy that you turned me on to X. Yeah, and um, are there any performances you wanted to single out? Because I think I have two that I would like to talk about in particular. I, I think Mia um, in the dual roles mm-hmm. is 
my standout by far. She, um, as Pearl was actually able to convince me that she wasn't just wearing this makeup and not performing. She actually reminded me of uh, Tilda Swinton in Suspiria where you were actually committed to the role in delivering. Um, Although although that was a different gender for Tilda. Um, So I I would say um, Mia, I would say that I was actually surprised by uh, Scott not doing very much for me. Um, I, I actually really like him as a person and a rapper and all that stuff. And I keep wanting to love him as a performer. But uh, just didn't work for me here. It was hard for me to take him seriously. How about you did you? not like you did not like him in Need for Speed. I did not watch Need for Speed, so maybe that's the one I need to go to. Aaron Paul <laughs> and Scott Muskie yeah. Need for Speed. Yeah, everyone <laughs> remembers the classic movie Need for Speed. Um, no, I want to point out Martin Harrison, who is someone who I didn't know. Apparently, he was on Grey's Anatomy, uh, but I don't watch TV. But he kind of, he plays the CD porn producer, but it's kind of funny to watch someone evoke the swagger and charisma of Matthew McConaughey without having any of that at all. And which is just kind of perfect for that type of character, right? You, you know, this guy, he's putting all his money onto trying to make the next Debbie Does Dallas and he thinks he knows it all. But you know, the moment, if he had lived, spoiler alert. Um, to the end of the movie, you know, once he gets to LA to show this, everyone's going to laugh at him because he yes. has none of that charisma. But there's someone, there's something satisfying about seeing someone with that faux charisma trying to act like he knows everything and just brutally doesn't. Yes. Yeah. He, um, I, I think that you had gone further in the trajectory than I had. I hadn't imagined him returning alive. Um, I, I was just focused on him. Like to me, he's just kind of a a hustler. He's just looking to score every single minute. And, you know, if he can turn this around and sell it for anything, then he can convince his girl that they're really going to go on and do something, which I think is kind of what the story of Pearl is going to be like, you know, just trying to convince this girl that you're going to go do something. And then in the end, all you have is this, uh, isolated ranch in Texas. Honestly, it might be like that Simon Rex character in Red Rocket. Yeah. Um, Although Simon's a little bit more charming. (laughs) He is definitely more charming. He definitely has more of that charisma. Um, And also, I really enjoy Brittany Snow's performance, who's kind of like finally shedding that teen comedy um, um, role that she's kind of been stuck in since John Tucker Must Die. And she's kind of gets a chance to be fun and charismatic in this movie. And they give her a whole segment where she sings a Fleetwood Mac song. Yeah, I don't know her work much. I think that the film that I like the most that she was in is Bushwick, which probably no one likes but me, um, in which Dave Batista delivers like a, a eight minute one take scene with a full emotional breakdown um in the laundromat crying it's uh it's it's great if you you like batista and you want to see his arc it's not mm-hmm. the best movie but it, it's got some really interesting character work um but yeah britney snow definitely um seems to be developing out of the pitch perfect role that i know her from yeah uh on to morbius or is there anything else that you'd like to discuss uh no i think that's it for me You've been missing for two months. When you're a stranger. Then you were found on a container ship that washed up off a of Long Island. Faces look ugly. 
Patrick, Morbius, the film we've been waiting three years for uh, that undertook, I don't know how many reshoots that they changed the entire post credit sequence of because it ended up coming out after rather than before Spider-Man No Way Home. This is uh, peak cinema. If ever there was peak cinema, this is Daniel Espinosa's Morbius. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the best superhero movie I've seen since The Young Mutants, another movie that definitely exists and came out. And um, is totally called that. Is that not what it's called? It's called The New Mutants. The New Mutants, see? Yeah. Great movie. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I mean, Morbius is... Feels like, feels like one of the most more cynical pieces of work I've seen in a while, and I'm pretty cynical about most movies. Um, and it's, it looks like a movie that's been reshot, recut, um, edited to death. And I don't know what it was like in its original form. But, but it was not what we saw. Yeah, it was definitely Specifically not what that we intro, saw. dude. That intro with the helicopter thing. Like, there's no way that that version is what they thought they were going to start the film off with. Because we've seen the trailer, all 70 versions of it, where that was a much longer sequence in the trailer. Yes, yes. And I mean, it was just like he sticks his hand through a something or other. And then for some reason, the bats attack everybody but him. And then he gets, I don't even understand what happened. Uh, but yes, so it, it sounds like we're on the same page with what the hell even happened here. Um the the one thing I will say is I was very impressed by the uh, the facial CGI um, where they're bouncing back and forth from a normal face to a CG face. It it did not um, reek of the uh, Henry Cavill mustache issue that we had with Justice League or anything like that. I was actually convinced that um, that was the best thing for the aesthetic they were going for i i didn't love it but i i did think that it was pulled off competently by the and artists you, and you know what that's something and I'm it is happy that there's something good to say about dr michael morbius well i i disliked it more than you so why, why don't you tell me um what you uh were not bothered by if not um impressed by <laughs> I I guess it was such a non-movie for me that I kind of just sat there, it happened, and I sat through it. And I guess I was never in disgust. So usually, um, if we're going by Larabox ratings, um, I rate a lot of things two stars. Mm -hmm. And that's usually a movie that I just don't think is very good, uh, but I don't actively hate it. Anything less than two stars means I actively just hate and loathe the movie. And okay. So it's a very emotional process for you. Yeah. And uh, Morbius is such a non-factor that it didn't even elicit 
any type of emotion. Mm. My main emotion was annoyance. <laughs> sure. Because, um, and it's not necessarily that I think that Daniel Espinosa is a bad director. I think that whatever happened is beyond one single person's responsibility here. But it's actually the cinematographer, Oliver Wood, that I think I have the most annoyance toward. Because the camera in this movie is always moving. It thinks that the audience has ADHD. It's just constantly moving the camera to keep you looking. But it's not actually trying to get you to look at anything. Because there's no um, ending of this movement where the, the tracked shot ends up turning into something that is uh, visually beautiful to look at or informs the themes or motifs of whatever is underlaying this. It's not evoking some image um, from say a a vampire film from before. It's just kind of bouncing back and forth really slowly enough for you to think that you need to keep paying attention without actually ever alighting on anything that deserves that time. Um, And that just, was sheer annoyance. It's not like I hated it, but I was just so annoyed by my eyes continuing to focus on tracking this motion and have that motion end up just turning back and going the other way now. <laughs> yeah, they try they try to do this thing where as vampires, um Morbius is able to move quickly, so they try to slow everything down and they do add this little blur effect to show speed. And it just I don't know. It's I understand your annoyance and it it really feels like it's a been there, done that. They did that with the flash. They did that with Quicksilver and it doesn't really add any, any excitement or anything new to the action sequences. Well, I, I mean, in the action sequences, it bothers me even less, but when we're in like the laboratory at the beginning, the mm. camera is literally just moving mm. aimlessly, but it's moving. So you think, because a director would normally aim the shot at something like it would graduate to some sort of a, uh, a moment, but it, it's just moving to move. It's just moving mm-hmm. to keep you looking. And it, it's, it feels decisions like that make it feel manufactured, which is yeah. what I hate is the business aesthetic of cinema, not, um, you know, wholly creative. Um, but you know, for all that, it does have, moments that are i guess interesting we could say Uh, can you enlighten me on what you found interesting um there's a a moment in the tunnel the the train tunnel after a chase sequence where jared leto and matt smith are um confronting each other with their powers and he's refusing to fight him and the train comes billowing in and all of a sudden the air changes to cgi air and he begins to uh fly through the tunnel pushed by the the airstream um which is actually interesting like i i don't personally find it that appealing but it is an interesting way of demonstrating a superpower for a superhero character or a supervillain character, whatever these are, um, that would be probably handled more poorly in someone else's hand. I, I do think that the way that they tried to demonstrate the powers here is a little bit more interesting than I would have expected. Can I ask, do bats just glide? Do they not fly? 
Uh, so bats fly, I'm pretty sure. But okay. that's what confused me about that. Wings, scene. I think, don't call okay, me but crazy, but I think that when we flap, nothing happens. Yeah, but I guess I, I also don't understand like why. Oh, dude, if we look at that, then we gotta know. go back to the MCU and talk about all the things that don't make sense. Where's Anna? Let's call Anna on the phone really quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're in her time zone. What is it, 740 over there? Let's get her on the horn. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't, why don't you try to find one thing nice to say? I think Matt Smith is having fun, and I'm happy that he has fun. That's yeah. Um and that's he, he, really absurd. He, he's he's playing an absurd character who I don't even understand why he is as angry as he was about his line life, um both him and um both his character who is named Milo and Dr. Michael Morbius. They grew up together in this kind of... Are they in an orphanage? I'm confused. I don't even know if they grew up together or they spent a week together with that intro. Like, I do not know the range of time that they spent to become lifelong brothers. They call each other brothers, but it's confusing as if they were abandoned in this hospital where they both have severe um, body... uh, what would you call it? Illnesses? Disease? Illnesses? Where they, Something like that? Yeah. They both have blood diseases. Yes. A rare blood disease, which makes them incapable of of walking properly. And, and they're everything. healed by Chernobyl's hero, Jared Harris. <laughs> yes. Who I guess is their surrogate father, but once again, are they adopted? Where are their parents? Why does Milo have so much money when he's an adult? I assumed he was already rich from his parents, but... Then again, where are his parents? Yes, and why does he have like private military contractors? Like, why does he seem to own a whole building? There's a lot of questions I have that this movie seems to have answered, but then edited out because there's just so many chunks that seem like they're discombobulated. Which honestly, probably for the best, because I'm sure if I did have to sit through that. I don't actually want all the answers to those things. Those are just... No, I want a four-hour unrated version of Morpheus. <laughs> unrated? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I, I want the full violence. I want throat ripping. I want Al Madrigal to shoot somebody. I want Tyrese Gibson to run someone over with the car. I want things to get crazy. And wasn't Michael yeah. Keaton actually in the original uh, yeah. trailer like as a character? In the movie? Well, he, he did play his Vulture character in the in the original trailer. It was obvious in the post-credit sequence that he did not come for the reshoots and only did really bad ADR. Yeah, well they he said that he was doing reshoots, but maybe it was just ADR. But yeah, the uh the the latter sequence where he's in the vulture suit or whatever was just insane. Um yeah. You know, this is a movie about a crazy scientist developing a blood cure for a disease, even though it works on. So I guess it's not about curing a disease. It's about changing the host to feed on blood, which makes you feel better or something. Um, Yeah, I wish it worked um, at all. I, I just didn't like it and it's very uninteresting 
in the reasons that I didn't like it. Like I said, it's mainly annoyance towards the choice of cinematography. But I gather it had a good opening weekend so far and that they are um, including this character moving forward in a push toward uh, a Sinister Six film. Um, So, you know, this is not the last time we will get Jared Leto acting as a vampire. Well, I mean, he already does in real life. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, Sony's been trying to push this Sinister Six movie forever. I mean, you could go all the way back to the Garfield days. And I guess even in the Tobey Maguire days, they really have it in their heads that they can make a Sinister Six movie work. And each time they try, they seem to be falling flat on their faces. And I think Morbius is... I feel like it's another example of them just trying so hard to start off this Sony Universe franchise. And it's, to me, just not working at all. Yeah, I I agree and echo all that stuff. However, I will say that I was uh, reading some you know, MCU stuff that Anna would normally tell me about um, just because I was trying to figure out what the hell is going on in Morbius. And apparently most people in the know think that because of the Spider-Man flash or whatever that happened at the end or beginning or however the hell this movie plays out, that the vulture suit that Keaton's wearing is the vulture suit that was in Andrew Garfield at uh Amazing Spider-Man 2 at the end of the movie so that Andrew Spider-Man or Andrew Garfield would be the Spider-Man in this universe. So that's maybe where it's going, apparently. I mean, they can justify anything that they want. I don't... They can they can <laughs> retcon it. I don't care. Just, well, no, I, I just think it's interesting to try to figure out what's happening, right? Because the original Sinister Six that they were going with was like the Sand Guy... Jamie Foxx's eyes, yeah, yeah, like, um, so this would be a different, I think this would be a different Sinister Six. So it's just interesting to see how they keep attempt, and they'll probably pull the plug just like they did last time. Um, yeah, the the craft here is just very disappointing. I don't really know what else to get into. Do you have it? Sounded like you had something to get to. Oh, yeah, I was, I was going to say that this is also one of the worst, uh, London or. England for New York movies I've seen. Like, it's just so, cl- um, I'm from New York City and this is just so clearly England. Even looking at the background characters, there's kind of this New York face that you just get a sense of and they all look very British to me. <laughs> Even before I knew for sure that they shot this in England. That's very interesting because at one point when I was watching this movie, I thought, where are we supposed to be? It was like in front of a bridge or something. And I was like, yeah. I don't remember knowing where I'm supposed to be. I know that the boat was off the coast of New York, but that's all I know. I don't know yeah. where anything else is supposed to be. And then once he went down the subway, the old subway or whatever, and made his lab, um, I knew that we were in New York, but it's, it's one of those movies that is um, uncommitted and uncanny and it's um, nature. Um can we also can we also quickly talk about uh, no, maybe this is too mean, but this <laughs> Adria Arjona actress who plays the love interest to Dr. Michael Morbius um, is so uninteresting, and they have so little sexual chemistry or just regular chemistry with each other. I don't know. She plays Martine Bancroft, and 
Yes. Wow. Um, I mean, the, the first thing I want to say is like, that doesn't seem like a surname that makes sense to me for this character. <laughs> um, the interactions that they have are very stilted at best. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, at one point, you know, there's a total uh, diversion, but I, I was just like, what would it be like if Jared Leto and Tilda Swinton just, just tried to play romantic characters off of each other? You know, like that, that just, I'd be much more interested in watching two aliens try to uh, act like they're in love than whatever this was. This was just Jared Leto uh, looking at someone who was kind of just playing themselves. Yeah, um, I mean, if you do want to watch Tilda Swinton as a vampire falling in love, you can watch Only Lovers Left Alive. Of course. Um, Can I also read this this thing that's written in Wikipedia? I don't know if it's real, but Jared Leto found the role surprisingly challenging since it was less character driven than his prior performances and closer to his real life personality, not requiring his well-known method acting approach. And I find that really funny. Well, you know, in between releasing albums with whichever band that he banned, 30 that Second is the, to Mars. Yes. He often goes to uh, Sweden and does not accept Nobel prizes. <laughs> because the uh, institution was giving him a prize for failing, and he thought that that was weak sauce. So, you know, that really fits with, with Jared's personality. Um, I, I actually really like him as a performer and actor. I just watched We Crashed, and, you know, it's absolutely insane, his depiction of Adam Neumann, but I also love it. I love big acting um, and... Uh, I, I like a, a role that sticks with me, even if it isn't um, perhaps unanimously agreed upon as good. There's something to be said of taking a risk and defining the way that people view that character. Um, you know, after he he did the Joker, a lot of people still dislike his portrayal of the Joker. But I think that going that insane and off kilter um, was the exact right thing to do when we were coming out of um all the other versions of the Joker, whether it's Mark Hamill's animated version or Heath Ledger's in-person version, he was really trying to make something wholly its own. And he's kind of one of the only actors that's willing to do that um, just unabashedly over and over and over. So I do appreciate that. I defend his House of Gucci performance. And I, I, I defend that movie. <laughs> um, anything else you want to go over or should we get to, I think what unanimously is our favorite film of the day? Uh, I, I guess I'll just say that Morbius is not even kind of the fun bad, which you can get from something like maybe Halle Berry's Catwoman or even the Venom movies. Or it's Cats. Kind of just, or Cats. It's the Venom kind of, movies are good, by the way. We're just the Venom movies are good. I do think it's good. Even <laughs> though I do think Venom 2 is also similarly edited in um, the death. It really feels like it was reshot and re-edited to death. Um, kind of like the way Morbius is, but still fun because of Tom Hardy's central performance and the ridiculousness of it all. And but Woody Mor- Harrelson's best performance by a wig. <laughs> but Morbius is kind of just boring and not that, not interesting in any way. Agreed. Um, all right. Moving on to the Daniels, everything, everywhere, all at once. He's waiting in the wings 
The universe. He speaks of senseless things. Is so much bigger. Than you realize. Of all the places I could be. I just want to be here with you. Remember our mission concerning the fate of every single world of our infinite multiverse. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection, every disappointment has led you here. To this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. All right, Patrick, the Daniels, everything, everywhere, all at once has uh, multiple different uh, eclectic eras of stars from Michelle Yeoh to uh, short round Ke Hui Kwan, who I did not realize was short round until I read your review. Uh, what did you think of the Daniels audacious film? Yeah, I think with, I mean, we just talked about a movie in Morbius that feels so abided to um, corporate synergy or trying to make a movie to the masses that's kind of fun to have. This movie that feels audacious and so singular to its own creators while still knowing that it's a movie and it's here to entertain and have fun and have ideas and um, put it all together. I it took me a while to really figure out my thoughts on this movie. I think it took me about a week to really, like, it's such a heavy, it's heavy. It's such a, it's such a movie with many different ideas. And, and it took me a while to really figure out how I feel about it. I'm still kind of stammering right now about it. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex multiversal film that, um, to, to quote you to you is handling this generational um, differences between the, this family. Um, but it also has hot dog fingers and, um, you know, existentialism in the form of rocks with subtitles. Mm-hmm. So it, it really does diverge from um, itself on, on all these different multitudes. So there's no real concrete way, I think to, pigeonhole it from a from a formal aspect I, I will say that philosophically i think that i i nailed it very quickly and it's the reason that i reacted strongly to it is um these are directors that are willing to engage with nihilism but yeah. they're not afraid to defeat nihilism with absurdism yes. which is the best and funnest way to confront negativity and the idea of death and the idea of nothing mattering is to put a raccoon on someone's head and call it Rakakui instead of Ratatouille. It is mm-hmm. to give people hot dog fingers. It is to shove trophies up people's butts. It is to make a trophy actually a butt plug. It is to cast uh, co-director Daniel Scheinert as the district manager and have him enjoy a BDSM play and get things shoved up his butt within the movie. It is absurdism that they're confronting all the negativity that's in this film with that is the reason why I love it at a philosophical level and then there's all these little things that they do um you know you mentioned in the mood for love in your review um that they they do these um homages so well and so convincingly that um you just kind of don't even notice the uh 
the high quality formalism that they're displaying in the midst of shoving things up people's butts. Yeah, and they really and they really engage with filmmaking as a form, as a visual yes. medium, and really like this movie or this story that the way they tell it can only exist in a visual medium. Like I don't see how this would work as a book or work. I well, it think- would work as a manga. Yeah, yeah, maybe it will work as manga. I know that it uh, would work even better as an anime. Mm-hmm. But then again, like, but then jumping from form to form, there's even a moment when it does become an animated uh, mm-hmm. film uh, for a short bit. Not it doesn't take that long, but it's inherently about its form as a visual medium. Yes, absolutely. There's things that it's pulling from as well, in my opinion, um, like 2046 or Millennium Actress that are just mm-hmm. like these great touchstones that they're not over belaboring. Um, yes. I think you, you mentioned that they grew up in the age of tsunami and it's, it's very, uh, or adult swim and it, it's very apparent that those, those influences are there, but they're riffing in such a way that I really can't think of another director or director duo that is working in this more millennial um mode of expression and um reflection on these older philosophical ideas right they're not engaging with philosophical ideas that are brand new these are boring old nietzsche nihilisms but they're throwing a lust for life and everything bagels and uh you know all that stuff on top of it it's it's just a real um visual treat on top of all the sincerity and um, morality that's buried within the text. And honestly, honestly, I think I also point this out in my review. I think the directing duo that they remind me most of is the Wachowskis, who I'm sure were a profound influence on them. But if you rewatch the original Matrix, it's it's also dealing with ideas that's been around before, but it also deals with them with earnestness if you rewatch the original actually all four movies ultimately they come down to the same idea that it's love that really when you think everything doesn't matter or that you are living in a simulation it's love at the end of the day that's going to get you through it all is that's what makes you human and the Wachowski similarly um are very audacious in their filmmaking but um in their visual storytelling and they also pull from anime and similar sources and also i believe it was lily wachowski or lana wachowski i'm not sure which one uh she said that she loved this movie as well on twitter recently okay yeah the uh i i do absolutely agree especially aesthetically on that but then there's there's moments within this film that just are direct references, in my opinion, to something like The Matrix, even though mm-hmm. th- there's so many moments in The Matrix that are in all stories that kind of end up <laughs> defining the way that we view it. Um, and I don't remember the name of the characters, but there's the the two characters who are killed off by... Um, oh boy, now I'm forgetting his name too. Th- there's two characters that are killed off in The Matrix, and um, they they look at each other and say like, I love you or goodbye before they get the plug mm, yeah. on them. Right. And when that moment happens near the end of this film to, um, alpha Waymond, the, uh, I mean, it's just, it's such a clear influence to me. Like, you know, that's a, a homage to the matrix, but it absolutely works in and of itself for this film. 
because they're not, because they're also paying homage not in the in kind of the hacky um visual aesthetic of like bullet time or things like that they're paying homage emotionally to the matrix as well yes which i think people often forget the central crux of what the matrix is about which is love and they matrix resurrections really hammers that in well it's um, love recently. and downloading kung fu and downloading kung fu and i know kung fu and michelle yo knows kung fu exactly kung fu pinkies um yeah so do you want to set up the uh the film do you want to explain it to people we, we've gotten to all this heady talk but we haven't really explained what it is yeah um michelle yo plays evelyn wong who um who's kind of a loser in life she has a very cheery husband named wayman played by uh Hui kwan um but although there's love there, she's kind of sees her decision of moving to America with him as where things begins to turn around. She owns a laundry mat that is moderately successful, but it's being audited by the IRS, um, where the IRS agent is, is played by Jamie Lee Curtis in a very funny role. Um, she's kind of, she's kind of distanced herself from her daughter, played by a relative newcomer, Stephanie uh, Shu. Um, and she kind of just looks down at her own life before suddenly she's brought into this adventure in which, um, a destructive force is about to destroy all of the multiverses and only her, only she can stop that destructive force. And, um, yeah. And then we get into kind of how this world works, which I think the Daniels do a really good job of setting this world up giving us all the rules on how she can connect with her other selves in the other universes in order to gain their skills or talents, such as Kung Fu or um, what else does she do? She does um, hibachi skills, her hot dog finger skills. Um, but Pinky Daniel's, Kung Fu acting. Pinky Kung Fu, exactly. Pizza sign spinning. Mm-hmm. But they do a really good job at setting up the rules of this world without ever making it feel just straight expository, which I think is one of the hardest things to do in movies is entertaining exposition. Yes. And the timing of part one, part two, part three is mm-hmm. um, not something that you could go into a boardroom meeting and really convince anyone of. Yeah. But in the moment, watching the film, where those breaks are actually feels correct. And um, it, it is one of those films that has an over two hour runtime where you're thoroughly engaged the entire time. You're not really waiting to to leave. You're just like trying to keep up with the film because it's all going so fast and is so diasporic. Um, and, and that's not easy to do in these over two hour runtime films, especially to deliver the, um, the themes that they deliver in the pathos that, that ends up coming through for the resolution. Like they, they really balance everything beautifully. Yeah. I mean, I was sitting front row in my packed theater and I was never bothered by doing that thing where you crane your head up for over two hours. I was happily enjoying myself and the Daniels were able to do that for me. <laughs> um so the 
the nature of the Bluetooth headsets um, is something that just didn't you didn't think twice about. Because I, I will say that that took me like a good half the movie to go like, what exactly are we doing here? <laughs> like, what, where, where is it syncing up to exactly? You, you know, because the people that she's pulling from don't have headsets on themselves. Yeah. So I I'm mean, still that, not thoroughly convinced on that one point. I mean, at the end of the day, that type of movie logic never bothers me unless I'm thoroughly bored. Like, thinking about Morbius flying with, do bats actually glide or do they fly? Yes. So, so I guess that, I guess that part, um, never bothered me. And honestly, at the end, if they stick the landing of the emotional center point that they want to get at, I will forgive almost anything. I'm very, I'm very, I'm usually very disinterested in actual plot mechanics. Okay. <clears throat> I, I do tend to get, um, a, a little bit more invested in them than maybe I, is good for me. Um, around mm-hmm. the end of part one, I think, um, we, we do have one of our Evelyn's die. And when she, died the um or maybe it was part two the credits roll for a different evelyn's film that we've been attending and then we end up going back to uh a divergent evelyn that made uh a different choice to go home and and work on the taxes and the um the way not just that in and of itself, but specifically that moment and the way that it was edited and the amount of emotional energy it had rolling into it. And it just hit the the ground walking smoothly. It wasn't trying to go too fast. It, and it let this emotional um, resonance hit of the divorce papers happening and everything. Mm-hmm. I was just v- very taken the entirety of this film by how smoothly it was balancing the uh, the generational mechanics, but yeah. also the emotional um, mechanics, the emotional themes, the different uh, resonances that are, are happening in these different timelines to create this um, th- this sense of longing and forgiveness and all these big emotions together at the same time. I, I just was kind of flabbergasted by it. Yeah, I think I think what makes um, this movie works as a uh, whole is that despite all the wonkiness they may or all the um random audacious things they may go to they keep that central emotional core as um in every multiverse arena that they go to i they know what point to what point that they're driving at and i think less talented filmmakers or who have less control of their movie that can get away from them. But these two were able to make sure that everything goes back to their central thesis. Yes. Um, as much as I do think that that's all led primarily by them as, as writers and directors, mm-hmm. I, I just think that the way that it was edited is the reason why it works. Yeah. And th- this is the first movie I've watched this year. Um, I, I take notes about things that I need to remember for the end of year voting. And this is the first film that I've watched where I actually had to write down a name. I think it was Paul Craig, who's the editor of this film, because when December rolls around and I've watched, you know, uh, 
a few hundred more movies than I have right now, it's going to be hard to remember that this is one of the best uh, edited films of the year. So yeah. um, I, I would really encourage people that are watching it to to just pay attention to those transitions and the juggling of these different timelines and where they center Michelle uh, as they continue to transition um, from sequence to sequence, because there's kind of a progressive um, filmic language that that is self-referential within the film, even though yes. they're doing homages to um, old Hollywood and um, the the Kung Fu films and all that stuff. Paul Rogers is the name of the editor. Paul Rogers. Close. There you go. I, I wrote it down, so I won't forget again mm-hmm. <laughs> when it matters. <laughs> Was there anything else that you wanted to get into? I guess, um, so I guess we can t- um, talk a little bit about um, the performances because along with the filmic language, this movie doesn't work without the people that they find to center it around. And that's namely the the three central family members, Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn, Kehui Kwan as Waymond, her husband, and Stephanie Sue as a dual role again as or I guess one role you can say as um, Evelyn's daughter, um, Joy or Jobu Tupaki, who is the person that's trying to destroy the multiverse. Glad we're on the same page. I thought you were going to try to tell me that, uh, that James Hong was one of the people that, and I, you know, he's good, but he could have just been played by like any dad character. Yeah. But um, it's great. That's James Hong. Cause who doesn't love James Hong? He's been, working for over 50 years and he's amazing he's good but i i could just imagine a, a lot of other people in his role whereas i i don't know anyone else that could do what uh kehui kwan is doing like it's just next level what he i mean he's doing this crazy action choreography while having this incredible uh pathos um so yeah uh who is the standout for you i mean it is definitely kehui kwan because like you said um he hasn't had a significant role since probably Data in Goonies or a short round in Indiana Jones. And yeah, his last he, movie was 2002, I think I read. Yeah, and I mean, he's been um, he's been doing um, stunt stuff. I think he's a he's been a stunt performer or a stunt choreographer. I looked into that, and he'd only done it twice. But at least that at least that gives you an idea of of why he can be able to do some of the physical stuff, but... Oh, yeah, I think he's got a black belt in Taekwondo. Yeah. But he just has so much... He he jumps around from from being this... It's not this faux cheeriness. He's an optimistic person who believes in people, but you can also see how he's been being down in life, too. There's a reason why he has divorce papers with Evelyn, but he... um. He he's able to provide so much pathos in all the different types of characters that he plays, both in regular Wayman, um, Wayman Prime, and then Alpha. all the Wayman uh, Alpha, and all the other Waymans that he ends up playing. And he just he's just an actor that I don't think you thought about, I've thought about, and it feels like he's come out nowhere to deliver a great performance. Yeah, I, I would love to know the backstory on how the hell they got him to unretire or whatever he's been doing for 20 years. So but I, I want to see a lot more of him. 
so I was listening to an interview with the Daniels on uh, the big picture and he just came into audition. This was the role that they, they were thinking about uh, a more famous star, but a, a more famous kind of acting star. And I'm not going to say it's like Jet Li, but let's say a Jet Li type. And, but they find that those types of actors were too alpha for mm-hmm. what Wayman should be. Cause Wayman is kind of emasculated he wears a fanny pack he's you know he's classic dad he wears a polo shirt with khakis um and so they found that other actors were kind of too alpha for that who has the um action abilities and then suddenly kehui kwan who decided to get back into acting came and auditioned for them and they and they were immediately taken by him and he was waiting there and he did his taekwondo kicks in the room for them that's awesome. Yeah, I, um, I I hope we we see more of him. I I also w- was most fascinated by him. I think that Michelle does that star power thing, and she yeah. centers the film wonderfully. But she, e- even though she does get to go crazy, she doesn't get to, um, or she doesn't reach that level of memorability for me that uh, Kay did. He just um, kind of broke my brain open that like this um level of acting and action can kind of happen at the same time in so many different levels um i I won't say that it's the best supporting performance i've seen all year but but it's definitely up there i i just i just think with at least with michelle she's such a movie star that you need a movie star to center a movie around, especially something as complicated as this. Yes. Just someone that you feel like you're in comfortable hands with. And although those performances are not necessarily usually the best or most memorable, I think without Michelle, this is, if you have someone of a lesser stature as Michelle, maybe who's a better actress, but lesser stature, this also would fall apart. Yeah. And to think this is, um, you know, going to be the smallest movie that she's involved in this year. In terms of budget size? Because I think so far this movie has a really high per theater average. Uh, well, she's in Avatar 2. Oh, well. <laughs> I'm very excited for Avatar 2. Uh, but Stephanie uh, Zhu, or Shu, um, you said that she had started um, on Broadway. Is that right? Yeah, she was in Be More Chill, which is a very popular show for some of the tweens out there, and SpongeBob the Musical. Okay. And uh, I, I know she was in, like, Set It Up, and she was in Shang-Chi as well. Um, mm-hmm. But she definitely um, is playing uh, a female character that, that kind of is in a super position. Um, she keeps bouncing between all these different outfits and representations of herself, but they're all, you know, this idea of an insecure um, young woman who kind of just wants her mom to love and accept her. And when she says that she doesn't want any more love, you know, what she actually wants is to be forced to be loved um, and accepted. And I think that she does that all really well. Um, yeah. She, she wears those facial expressions. Well, she does have a few of the stage acting tics mm-hmm. um, where she like turns her shoulders away a little bit too forcefully to change 
the way that she's going to to perform things that Adam Driver also had problems with in the beginning of his career, um, like when he was doing Girls that he later, you know, now he has none of those um, little ticks um, that that were a little bit um, that artificial that, that showed that you were going through the process of performing and delivering. Um, but I, I aesthetically was very impressed by the way that she was able to pull off all those different looks in order to um, cement the, the different um, versions of who she was playing. I wonder also if um, that affectation is a little bit on purpose too, because especially in the beginning of the film, um, she is all affect, or at least um, when she's this Jobu Topaki character, she's all affect because she's trying to portray herself as kind of cool or a badass or something to be feared. Mm-hmm. When and then I feel like as that version of her character begins to go through, you see that affectation start to um, decrease as she comes more into terms with her emotionality. Yeah, there could have been a conscious choice to it, but uh, I mean, even Joy has those moments where mm-hmm. she's turning away and, and turning back. Um, you know, it's something that a lot, a lot of the stage actors do. Um, and there's just there's a few different ticks that I don't like. It, you know, yeah. all, I uh, famously don't really like Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, mm. but that's a separate <laughs> debate. Um, I think that that. He is fantastic on the boards. She's fantastic on the boards, but there's a different thing to movie acting. Um, But I I was still very convinced by her. And she, um, you know, as Lauren Michaels says, the most important thing you can do for SNL is put on a wig and a different outfit. Well, she can put on a wig and a different outfit. Yeah. And she definitely had to do it for Be More Chill and SpongeBob the Musical. I saw who's seen SpongeBob the Musical. Yeah. Did, Did she play SpongeBob? <laughs> he plays Karen the computer. Uh, playing oh, okay. Wife. Okay. Um, yeah. The, I mean, the range of films that are referenced here um, mm-hmm. is incredibly broad. Kind of like an X. There, there's a lot of different films that are being serviced, but they're all um, kind of dazzling reasons to explore yeah. these different modes of cinema that they're able to express. And it, it shows me that when the Daniels work together, they seem to be at their best. Um, I, I watched Daniel Scheinert's uh, the death of Dick long, which he directed by himself. Mm-hmm. And it's just um, much, I it's definitely trying to do the same things, but kind of falls flat on its face. It's trying to be absurdist in the face of nihilism, but I, I just did not care for it at all. Um, so I do think that these two co-directors actually bring the best out of each other. Something interesting from that same interview I mentioned before is that the Daniels, both of them don't consider themselves cinephiles. That's not their entertainment um, vehicle of choice. One of them says that they're more into video games. One of them said they're more interested in comic books and poetry. And I think there's something to that about I we, we're getting we are getting a bunch of filmmakers today young filmmakers who are kind of like who loves movies but sometimes so much of that is just trying to ape something without necessarily yes the proper reasoning for and i think because the daniels aren't necessarily cinephiles i think that really goes to their advantage in what they are 
calling and they have other interests and because they have other interests they're able to find new ways to pay homage to things yeah that is um that's an interesting note because there there is a lot of just pure imitation for imitation's sake yeah um you know people that think that because they have a budget that you know that they have the the right or the duty or whatever to um imitate the these previous great works of cinema but then it you know it, it takes a different type of a person to say you know we're gonna do an homage to this because it's a beautiful language of film but we're gonna do it in a film that's totally you know about something else and even though it you know has a lot in common with the Wachowski's Matrix is totally its own thing. And I would yeah. argue is more similar to something like Millennium Actress, even yeah. though it's very far away from that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I also think this is perhaps my favorite uh, Russo Brothers production that's uh, been released ever. Um, I, I also liked their film Extraction, but um, out of all these new films that they've produced, this is definitely my favorite. So you're not a f- a fan of of Yumi and Dupree? Uh Yumi and Dupree they directed. And I, oh, okay. I do so like only that. Talking about producer. Yes, yes. As producers, I've so far really disliked most of their projects. I didn't see Relic. Um, but 21 Bridges was very clunky. Extraction actually had a great um chase sequence. I hated Assassination Nation, and Cherry was one of the most I, stupid things I've seen. So. I also hate Assassination Nation. And honest, I will say this. You um, after you watch X, you immediately mentioned Sam Levinson to me, mm-hmm. and I hated that you did that because to even tie his name to X is—I know he produced it, but yeah, I, I was going to say he, very, he produced it and he produced Pearl. I, I, I don't feel there's any Sam Levinson fingerprints on on X, but that's there a whole different. But I, I definitely, um, when I was messaging you that I was. I'd been hoping that there would be that absurdism uh, that that is in Euphoria, where it's just like absolute crazy. Um, where X was actually very sensical, and I like it. It's just I kind of wanted crazier. Sure. <laughs> Sorry uh, to get on that tangent, but uh, the finale sequence, the everything bagel, um, was it everything that that you'd hoped? Did it live up to your um, expectations that were set over its two-hour runtime. Yeah, th- th- I feel like bagels are getting like a thing in in movies as metaphors, right? There's the at least uh, the only other one I guess I'm thinking of is in Knives Out when, um, when uh, Daniel Craig's character also references a bagel. But no, I think I think they were able to skip. Uh, I think they were able to land that emotional punch i will admit that i may have gone a little misty-eyed at it and um i mean i'm also gonna cry at movies honestly but um i think they they landed that emotional punch i will say that the one thing that um kind of takes me back from this being the perfect movie is i think sometimes they they kind of hit some of the sillier jokes a little bit too much um we didn't need a third beat on the pinata joke for example yeah i i think that i i i probably agree with almost everything you said there i i do like um so there's layers of absurdism right and part of absurdism is um 
as uh, Seth MacFarlane has nailed in Family Guy or, you know, is a nightmare, depending on your sensibility, is part of absurdism is to just hold a bit for too long because Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is also funny. Um, So for for me, I did like a lot of the repetition. It it did not get me to the point where I was exhausted. Um, I did think that there were um, sometimes better riffs to go back to as far as the the different absurdisms that they developed um but you know the these guys really like shoving things up people's butts and that's always going to be as funny as a fart joke so you know in general i i responded strongly to it for for me the um the resonance that the uh feelings that the the film evoked in me is kind of what I'm most impressed by. You know, I, I watched it last night, but this morning I still have um, a tangential feeling w- within me of the emotions that it um, landed at, at the end of that film and the level of sincerity and um, compassion that was conveyed and the looking into the face of everything meaning nothing and um, eating a bagel, you know, like it's, it's just, there. there's a, a beauty to what they were able to do that is not common in multiplex films. Um, so I, I, I think that even though I didn't give this film that high of a rating, I think we both have it at three and a half stars. It might be the film that I feel most philosophically content with, you know, four months into the year. Yeah, and I feel like, I think I mentioned in my review, there's been kind of this glut of movies trying to explore this generational trauma theme of Turning Red, Encanto. I get a lot of kids' movies, it seems like. Yeah. Um, and especially movies dealing with um, Asian Americans. Um, Encanto is about a Colombian family. But I think this movie really pulls that off a little bit better than some of those other ones just by I think there's inset with Joy and her exploring nihilism and kind of this overwhelming feeling of knowing everything especially with the way that kids are exposed to the internet and everything and then really with with that really um, widening that gulf between generations with a mother who is now of the internet age um, I think the way that they land on that and pulling her back in is felt very resonant for someone who can feel that with his own mother. Yes. Yeah. That's there's just not been another movie like this, this year. And um, I, I suspect that I may remember it even more fondly, the more distance that we get from it. Yeah. So Um, there's a, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, so there, uh, there's a lot of these, uh, we see a little bit of all these universes. Is there one that you would like to be in, live in, relish in? Uh, one that I would like to be in, relish in. I mean, it's got to be the uh, the one where there's pinky kung fu, right? Like, <laughs> wh- how... However the entire world is laid out, like, the distribution of power and just like whatever that would be like in a world where pinky melee attacks are op um i just gotta see how that changes you know the construction of bank vaults and 
um, you know, the size of buttons and like, you, you know, if, if people have special gloves to keep their pinky from accidentally hurting anyone, um, you know, murder trials with accidental pinky finger deaths versus murder trials with gun deaths. You know, how does the sentencing structure work? There's just all sorts of things that I would be fascinated by. How about you? I'm also thinking about like, what if you got pinky strain? Is there pinky rehab? What yeah. does that look like? All, all these different things. I mean, I guess just cause I also wish I can live in a, in a, in a rainy Hong Kong street. <laughs> like I'm in a Wong Kar Wai movie, I would, I would love to be romanced in an alleyway or talk about, uh, lost loves, especially with the way Kehui Kwan was able to, to evoke a swooning male lead. Yes, that, um, the richness of the way that they presented that, um, alley mm-hmm. is just as memorable as, uh, Wong Kar Wai scenes. Yeah. Are and the, you know they they didn't just do an homage to it they actually delivered the goods. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a great one. But, but I don't. I think I'd get bored of living my whole life in an alleyway. As much as I <laughs> love the aesthetic of it, <laughs> I just want to be swooned and and think about all the things I've loved and lost. Mm-hmm. But then you're 60 and you're waking up in a in a halfway house and you're <laughs> you're you got a hand on a bottle of hooch and you're Humphrey Bogart and you go, where did life go? Uh, anything else you wanted to cover on everything everywhere all at once? No, I, this is definitely a movie that should be watched in movie theaters. If I don't know how this would play on your home screen, but to get the maximum, um, effect and just kind of this, um, overload of visuals and sound, really watch it in a multiplex with stadium seating. Yeah. It's, it's built for the big screen. I, I mean, as much as that's true for, any film, I, I do think that you'll still have a fantastic time with it on the home TV. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, Patrick. No, thank you for having me. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant.